Everything you think you know about fundraising and philanthropy? Well, some of that might just be a myth. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school, and I'm joined today by Dr. Amir Pasek. He is the Eugene R. Temple Dean of the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And Dr. Pasek challenged the team to come up with what do we know about philanthropy, but what might be some of the myths about philanthropy? And that turned into a splendid article that was published on the cover of the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And Dean Pasek, thanks again for being back with us on these podcasts. What gave you this idea that we really should be talking about not just what we champion about philanthropy, but maybe what some of those myths might be? Well, it was really a conversation that was based on how do we get more of the wonderful research that we do in our school out there and appreciated by the practitioners who we believe could benefit from engaging with the uh, academic scholarship and the research that we do. And, you know, some of the times, you know, people talk about myths. We hear about this in the fundraising school all the time. Well, you know, if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. In the fundraising school, we teach no. If you want a financial gift, you ask for a financial gift. Yeah. This is much broader. This is much deeper. What are you seeing in the field that this article met a need? That, again, that there might just be some commonly held thoughts out there that the research just does not support. Right. Well, we often use l rules of thumb, um, if you will, myths. Uh, we, we need them. Uh, we, we can't really do without them. It's, they're kind of shortcuts that we need to get, get along with uh, everyday work. So it's not unusual to have them, but I think there's a space where we need to be able to reconsider them and think about them twice. So that uh, even though it's a rule of thumb that was useful in terms of getting us through the day, we need to have a space. And I think our school is a, a unique space to be able to sit, to, to kind of get outside of the urgency of getting the work done to think about, well, are we using all the tools uh, appropriately? Are we making assumptions that are no longer warranted? So that was really the, the, the purpose of uh, looking at these myths as a tool, kind of to reconsider um, how we're doing our work. And certainly we don't want to discount lived experience. In fact, when, when we teach for the fundraising school in our modules, we build in time for peer-to-peer -peer learning. And when I teach for you in the master's program, you know, we have working adults, and we give them time to weigh in from their lived experience. But there's something very unique, richer, deeper, about evidence-based learning. You've mentioned a couple times already the research base of our school. Why is it important to approach these philanthropic topics from an evidence-based perspective? Well, because we want to understand why things work in general, not just why they might have worked in one particular situation. So I think in our field, we have a lot of people who have been practically successful, and uh, they share their, um, their experiences and how they succeeded, which is very valuable. And I think it's often the way you know, we've had uh, knowledge grow uh, through civilization by one generation passing on its wisdom to the next. But it's a completely different notion when you try to make generalizable uh, principles and generalizable laws about what will work in a variety of situations and what about certain situations may be different than the ones that you, you, you may have grown up with through your career. So it's really trying to establish knowledge that is valid beyond certain specific situations, more broadly a generalizable knowledge, which is also a wonderful way to teach subsequent generations, not simply following uh, the um, the, the path of a particular uh, practitioner who was very successful, but learning what will be successful in our field across a, a variety of situations so that they can hit the ground running and not feel that they're only um, you know, basing their knowledge on one's, one, one particular 
set of practices. And this goes back to the heart of who we are as the Lilly Family School Philanthropy. The idea that philanthropy is a field that can be studied. Philanthropy, uh, there is knowledge that can be discovered. Uh, this isn't something you know that I do as a one-off, I do off to the side. This is something we can dive deeply into. This really exemplifies not just who we are as a school, but what we believe about philanthropy itself. Well, that's, I think that's, that's, that's well said. It's the part of the uh, generosity being part of the human condition, that it is, it is everywhere, but we've often understudied it, felt that this is something that we do uh, at the kitchen table, therefore it is something that is part of family life and therefore not suitable to be rigorously studied, you know, um, in the spaces where government and, and the uh, business take over, which seems to be much more serious. But there is a very deeply serious part about generosity. A lot of those other areas of our activities would be hard to think about if we didn't have those kitchen table conversations about who we are, what it means to be responsible to each other, and how to treat people um, uh, with dignity and respect. So uh, I think we are, as you say, uh, trying to elevate the importance of rigorous engagement with human generosity and what difference it makes for us individually and for the societies that we seek to improve. And Dean Pasek, please help our audience understand how then does that play out amongst our researchers at our school? A business school has folks who research business. A medical school has folks who research medicine. We have folks from many disciplines. How does that play out in our school? Well, we have many disciplines because, one, um, generosity manifests itself. You can see it across a wide variety of um, ways of thinking about the world and ways of acting in the world. Um, but it also, we have many different disciplines because we're building a new discipline and coming together uh, under the guise of philanthropic studies to see uh, how we can understand not only um, generosity for its own sake, but how we can understand it uh, with the purpose of um, our conversation today is to inform people who are working in the in the nonprofit sector, but even broadly than the nonprofit sector, more broadly than the nonprofit sector, to see how they can um, kind of deploy their own generosity more effectively and motivate the generosity of others as well. So when you go across our faculty row, you find sociologists, psychologists, historians, ethicists, people who declare expertise in the humanities, people who have an interest in the intersection between philanthropy and the public sector, and philanthropy and the private sector. And, and I'm leaving some out, but there are just many, and it's wonderful. I, I enjoy when we have visitors and our faculty will introduce themselves. I am a sociologist, I am a psychologist, uh, how they identify that way, how that drives their research, and it all comes together to help us have a deeper, more richer understanding of philanthropy. And that's where we get to these myths, myths like, well, if religious affiliation is down in the United States, certainly that must be harming charitable giving from folks of religious faith. Or if people here are immigrants, they're more interested in their home nation, they're not going to be a donor here in the States. Or people of color maybe are perceived wrongly and sometimes horribly as somebody's just a receiver, not somebody who can be a donor. And, and let's not waste our time on those small gifts. We should all be thinking about right. the large gifts. I mean, these were just some of the examples of the myths that were uh, in this article. How did these ideas bubble up? Was this a group discussion? Did, did uh, you know, our faculty members just kind of have a rock in their shoe and they just had to get this out? How did this all come together? 
Well, I think it was uh, Professor Lane Benjamin's idea to come up with uh, the notion of myths. Let's look at these myths because there are interesting hooks to get people to think about uh, uh, things differently and to pay attention, first of all, to why research is important to them. And then I think we surveyed our faculty and saw who was interested, who had some ideas about myths that they wanted to talk about given the fact that we were trying to get this done relatively quickly and to make it accessible to um, practitioners. Uh, so it was really kind of an organic process after uh, we came up, or Lane came up with the notion um, of the myths. Now, one thing that is a strong point of emphasis for you is not research just for the sake of research. And certainly our, our colleagues uh, are integrated in the academic conferences and they are published and they all are sought after as experts. But you have a strong emphasis on research to practice. That's also a hallmark of our school. Help our audience understand uh, that philosophy behind our work. Well, you know, we have uh, many fields of thought uh, that are um, well established in our universities and they have very long pedigrees going back in the, so the social sciences uh, over a hundred years, the humanities you might say, uh, from the dawn of uh, um, organized thinking and writing um, uh, at the dawn of civilization. Um, and, and sometimes those, those fields uh, kind of become very concerned about perpetuating themselves uh, and uh, um, they have continued to inspire people to do wonderful things in the world but occasionally it's interesting to kind of think a little bit differently and think about what may have been what may be missing in the spaces between these different disciplines and we think at our school that philanthropy and generosity is one of those things that has not found um, kind of very significant coverage in the disciplines as they currently stand but at the same time, these disciplines are very important to bring to bear so that we can illuminate um, what's happening at the same time. So we, as we're building this, this discipline, we, we don't want to create a moat around it or a silo and, and declare that you know, we have, uh, we're, we're you know, building this new discipline because we want to create, just because we want to create new journals and want to create a special new language. But we always want it to be uh, thoughtfully connected to how we can help people who are working on some of the most difficult issues uh, in our society and be useful to them. So I think we want to build in this relevance uh, for practitioners as part of the discipline that we're, we're building. And it's not an easy thing to do because the language of scholarship is often focused on peer review and that means speaking to people who are deeply um, engage with the same questions that you engage, engage with. And then practitioners, on the other hand, really want knowledge that's going to help them solve the problem that they're dealing with today or in the months to come. And so creating um, connections between those two cultures requires sustained effort. You can't simply get together occasionally and say, well, this is what we're researching and, and this should help you do your work and vice versa. So we need to create thoughtful and, lost, and lasting uh, bridges between those two communities. And in some ways, I think um, this is also where higher education is going more broadly, trying to kind of demonstrate and um, intensify the relevance without um, compromising uh, the important values of an independent ac academy. And with that wise reply, Dean Pasek has rolled out the welcome mat. If you are in the research community, you are welcome. Intersect with our researchers. Uh, all the research studies are available for free on our website uh, and, and intersect with our, our talented faculty and research team. If you yourself want to continue your academic work, as you've heard Dean Pasek today, these are the conversations we have in our master's degree, which is now in 
available entirely online, asking about the why, asking about the what next, asking about the historical context, and really developing people as leaders in the philanthropic sector. And again, that master's degree now entirely online. And if you're a practitioner, there are many ways to intersect with us, including at the fundraising school, where we see ourselves as translators. We're so fortunate to work with these talented researchers, and then we translate their findings with their help into practical action, praxis, if you will, so that you can raise more money for your good causes, serve more people, advance your values and your causes of your nonprofit organization through the fundraising school. Now, all of this is available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu. You'll find the academics tab where you'll learn more about the online master's degree. You'll find the research tab where you pull that down and find all of our various research. And under institutes, you'll find the fundraising school with our 20 public courses in 18 U.S. cities, custom training, quarterly webinars, and of course, these free podcasts. And all of it's also very easily available on our app that's available through any place you purchase an app. It's free. The Fundraising School, a way to access not just the Fundraising School, but the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. With Dr. Dean, uh, our Dean, Dr. Amir Pasek, I'm Bill Stanjakovich, and now you are now more fully informed on this first day from the Fundraising School. Mm -hmm.